Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories, and the music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone, and that that turns data into tunes. It's also the sound of turnout in midterm elections, going right back to the foundation of the United States. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism and we will chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You'll get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. So, Simon, what do we have on the agenda today? So I think we have a really interesting call this week with Jessica Huseman, who is probably the expert on election law and a data journalist. She has um, started a non-profit for training data journalists. She's also at VoteBeat, which kind of monitors all of the stuff happening around election laws around the country at the moment as we head into the midterms. And she, she began her career at ProPublica, if I remember well also, right? Yeah, that's right. That's how we met originally. She was at Election Land, both uh, of the times that I've been in the office for it. And um, she really kind of has created this area of speciality using data, I think, to, to tell really interesting stories. It was a very, very exciting conversation. I'm looking forward to everyone uh, listening to it. So I think that we can just jump right in. Yeah, let's get started. I'm Jessica Huseman. I am the editorial director of VoteBeat, and I also own a nonprofit called The Friendly State News that does some data journalism and records training. Um, and we are hiring. So if you're a journalist and you're listening to this, please apply for our jobs. Great. Jessica, tell us a little bit about what you do day to day. Yeah, well, that's kind of shifting on a daily basis because VoteBeat is new. <laughs> So we don't even know what we're trying to do yet. We we have a great idea um, and we're going to try. We'll see how it goes. Um, you know, we're founded under the model of Chalkbeat, right? So Chalkbeat is a national network of K-12 newsrooms that all cover public education and they do so locally, which allows them to be local reporters but benefit from a statewide development network, from a statewide, or from a national, I'm sorry, editing network, from a national editing or national development network, all sorts of things that you can share in between states while still getting the local expertise that the reporting needs. Um, and so we're recreating that with VoteBeat. And so we've got one editor for three states, and we have two reporters in every state. Right now, we just have one reporter in the three states that we're currently in. We will eventually have two, and then we'll add more states. And so, you know, I think that we're a, like we can benefit from national expertise, national data work, national share data sharing and systems and still produce like very localized reporting and so that is what that's our that's our end goal and that's why we're hiring reporters that are so specific to their states but editors and news apps developers and engagement doesn't necessarily have to be what what states are you covering right now and what states are you planning to cover 
Nick? Yeah. So we are right now, we have reporters in Texas and Arizona and Pennsylvania. We are right now adding Michigan. Um, The next state after that will be Wisconsin. And then depending on how quickly we can fundraise, it will either be North Carolina or a combined New York, New Jersey office. And so those are the states that we will start in for 2022. By 2024, we hope to be in several more. Feel like you are the face of uh, people talking about all the problems around voter suppression and you know the redistricting and stuff that's going on at the moment. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this world. Like, you know, what's what path led you to this now? I don't even know, really. It was it's all a blur. I think um, in 2016, I was a senior fellow at ProPublica, which essentially is just like fancy name for intern. And when my contract got extended, um, Eric Umansky at ProPublica was like, okay, you don't cover health anymore, which is what I had been covering. You cover elections. And I was like, okay, I need a job. So I will do that for you. And I have never covered anything else. And so, you know, it's all Eric's fault. And um, it's election land 2016's fault, which is how I know you. But like really election land 2016, which is I Prior to Vote Beat, I was the um, lead lead elections reporter at ProPublica, which is a job that previously did not exist, right? Like 2016 was a surprise for everyone. And that I stayed on that beat after 2016 was also a surprise to everyone, including me. And so now it's just taken over my whole life. But I don't mind because I actually really like it. I had always aspired to cover politics, and it had never occurred to me to isolate within that election administration and voting security and voting rights. But it is a very sort of definable beat. And I think it's one that not as many journalists cover as they should. And so I've been able to sort of by accident, by virtue of just like being present when election land 2016 happened, I've been able to create my own beat. And I'm happy that other like, it certainly wasn't my idea, this beat. Uh, But you know, I'm happy that other newsrooms are adding this type of coverage to their to their reporting priorities as well. It's so interesting. I feel like previous election cycles, the, the administration of elections wasn't such a big story. I know, like election land kind of like, brought all that stuff together in a way. We could talk a little bit about this moment that we're in and Maybe how election land card led you to that because yeah. that seemed to be a unique card time right now, doesn't it? It is. And so election land was this great project. And, and I hope ProPublica continues to do that. I do it. I'm not there and cannot run it anymore, obviously. But um when when they told me what it was, I was like, huh, do people not already do this? And I was surprised that election land was like the first thing of its type, which is that election land took data from 866 our vote which is a national hotline for people to call in if they're expect if they have problems at the polls or they're having problem registering to vote or whatever and we were able to see all of those calls coming in in real time and so we built this huge network of local newsrooms and we hired a bunch of temporary journalists and we did this in 2016 2018 and 2020 to take that data verify it and then push it to the local newsrooms who needed to cover the problem at that polling location Previously, the way that journalists covered problems at the polls were literally like driving around and being like, are there any problems here when they walked into a polling location, which like is not efficient um, and also isn't a great 
way to understand where problems actually are. Because if you go to a place that's making a big deal of a thing that's not really a problem and you report it as a problem, you're like part of misinformation. Whereas if you're filtering it through a national hotline of lawyers who can be on the phone and say like, that's not a problem. Like then we have a bit of a check to our sort of difficult understanding of how elections operate. And so I think all of that and and sort of interacting with every single state and problems in every single state as a, in election land 2016, 2018, and 2020, I realized that there was a need for journalism to happen about these things year round because election land, as valuable as it was, was missing a lot of the story. And by that, I mean, the decisions that impact the way that we vote, like the voting machines that we use, the way that our voter roll works, voter registration changes are almost entirely made in non-election years, right? And that makes sense, right? Because county clerks are not going to buy new machines in the middle of an election year. They're going to buy new machines in an off-election year, get them set up, and then let them go on election day. And if you haven't been covering that process, how do you positively influence it, right? Like it it doesn't do a lot for the media to talk about how terrible the machines are once they've already been purchased and deployed because they're not going to buy machines for another 10 years. If you're not part of that conversation when it's happening, you can't influence it. And so I think that journalism as a watchdog and an oversight body is used during election years and it needs to be used in off years when the decisions around voting are made. And so that's that is the position that we find ourselves in now, right? Like think about all of the big questions that people were up in arms about in 2020, like Dominion machine, like real or not real concerns, right? Like Dominion machines, how long the lines were, where their precinct was located, how many polling locations had been shut down from 2020 or from 2018 to today. None of those decisions were made that year. They were made the previous year or the year before. And so we're calling them out now, but they happened a year and a half ago. And so that is, that's really what we're trying to, to account for is all of these decisions that impact voters in this really specific way that just don't get covered unless there is a problem. And it is far more positive and impactful from a journalism perspective to cover the problems before they happen, because then we just don't have problems. I mean, that's very simplistic, but I think journalism is, is part of the solution and not part of the problem. Maybe we are part of the problem. Who knows? But oh, I think we definitely are. I think we can <laughs> be part of the solution. Like the amount of misinformation I have seen on like pretty reliable news organizations simply because they don't understand how elections work operationally is very high. And the number of, you know, people who show up to the polls misunderstanding what kind of ID they needed to bring or how they needed to register to vote or whether or not they needed to be registered at all. A lot of those misunderstandings can be traced back to like a poorly articulated or incorrect news article about like preparing to vote. That's so interesting. Um, do you have any initiative ongoing to perhaps train other journalists, other journalists who are on this beat to better inform the public? Yeah, this is something that we're going to be rolling out over the course of this year. So as we do trainings for our partner news organizations, which we have in all of the states that we're working in, we're going to open that up to any journalist in the state. And sort of the challenge here is that election laws and election technology are so different from state to state to state that it's hard to have 
a training for journalists across state lines because the rules are so different. And so we kind of have to do it like, this is for Texas journalists. This is for Arizona journalists. This is for Pennsylvania journalists, rather than saying like, everyone can come. Because if we do that, then the training doesn't, you know, it doesn't sync up to what reality is in your state. It has to be very specific. But I think as VoteBeat grows and we do get in-depth expertise in these states, then we can sort of expand our model. So we're really eager to not get out over our skis, right? Like right now, we probably don't have the resources to do a training for journalists in Oklahoma. Like I don't live there. We don't have any journalists there. I don't have any Oklahoma specific expertise, but we can train journalists all day long in Texas and Arizona and Michigan and Georgia and North Carolina. There are states that we know and we know well, and there are states that we don't. And so as we grow, that's part of the the growth is, is making sure that we can do additional training beyond just the reporters that we employ. And with something like this, where there's so much misinformation, how can you train people to, to deal with that? It feels like, it feels like, you know, besides vaccines, election misinfo is, must be the top area right now. You know, this is such an interesting question because I think I had a conversation about the challenges that Russian speaking journalists are facing right now in Russia with a journalist a few days ago. And her overriding point was essentially, how do you speak to an or- to an audience that is so inundated with propaganda that they don't believe you? And I don't think that we're at that point right now in the United States, but I think that there is certainly a faction of the Republican Party that will not believe us regardless of what we say. And so I think that it is incumbent upon us to not disengage with that. I think that it is very easy for journalists to be like, well, you don't listen to me anyway, so I'm just not going to talk to you, right? Rather than trying to figure out new ways to convey the information. And I don't know if there's a right answer or there's not a right answer for how you convey that information. But what I do think is that journalists need to continue being creative because it is incumbent upon us to explain things to the public. That's literally our job, right? And so if we decide that there is a whole section of the public that we just don't need to engage with because they don't listen to us, like, I don't know who does, like, who, 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 is benefited by that. Like, I'm certainly not. Like, I see my audience decreasing. They see less good information. Like, it it behooves both of us to sort of figure out how to move forward together. And so I think that re-emphasizing local journalism and re-emphasizing, like, we're talking directly to voters oh. in Texas. We're talking directly to voters in Michigan. And you appeal to people not on the basis of like, you're a Republican who votes in Michigan, you're a Democrat who votes in Michigan, but you are a person who votes in Michigan and this will affect you. Like we have to figure out how to convey that message. And right now we're not conveying that message. And I think that there is like nobody that can fix that but us. And I don't have the answers yet, but I think that one day we will figure out what the answer is, but we all have to be willing to actually do the thing. We can't just be like, those people don't matter because they don't listen to us. So assuming facts still matter somewhere, somewhere. Um, how can you use data and how how do you use data in your role to kind of like help tell some of those stories? You know what? I think data is such a great thing, like in elections specifically, because, you know, 
you hear the right say there's so much voter fraud and you hear the left say there is no voter fraud. And then they just like yell those things back at each other, like in a constant loop. Right. Whereas there is data in elections that can show you that something happened or didn't happen. Like the uniquely wonderful thing about the American elections system is that 95% of voters are casting paperbacked ballots, which means that there is a literal physical vote that you can check, right? Like we don't need to have these theoretical discussions over what's fraudulent and what's not fraudulent because there's data that we can show people and that we have systems to record and to verify. Like logic and accuracy testing, centralized voter rolls, cybersecurity logs, all of these things are data implements that are, as a matter of course, recorded in elections. And it's frustrating as a data journalist or someone who considers yourself a data journalist, I don't know, uh, that all data journalists who want to talk to want to go into political reporting go to campaigns because they're like, campaign finance, um, money, <laughs> like, do you know how much data there is in election journalism? Like, there's so much that's completely untapped because people don't realize how much there is and what you can do with it. it it's making me feel that I should jump into that bandwagon at some point and start working in those, in those topics. It sounds so inviting. But I have a question related to that relationship between the existence of this wealth of data and that portion of the public that we could label as unpersuadables, right? Uh, do these sort of like mass of people, which seems to be unfortunately uh, grouped under the Republican banner at the moment, um, do they pay attention to the data? Do they care about the data? Do they care about the fact that there is no evidence for massive voter voter fraud at all? Because that that I seems, seems do, to be the fact, right? right? I think that. I think that the thing here is that we have allowed elections to be a theoretical conversation for a really long time. And so the misinformation that you're hearing now didn't just appear out of the ether. Let me let me give you an example. So we have all heard um, these conversations around how like Hugo Chavez from his grave manipulated a bunch of machines, right? That piece of misinformation, that conspiracy theory originated with the far left in the early 2000s. People have been talking about the Venezuelan impact on voting machines since 2002, right? And so it's not that the right is just like suddenly coming up with all of these crazy ideas. Like they are latching on to ideas that have always existed and have never been meaningfully tackled by the media because we don't choose to become hyper-involved in election administration and the ins and outs and highly technical nature of it. If the media in 20, in like 2002 had said, hey, this is insane and isn't true, then maybe we could have nipped that shit in the bud in the 2000s, like rather than now, right? When it's like meaningfully grown to the level that it is, it has taken over another whole section of society. And so I think that like the right question is not, how do we engage with the people who refuse to engage with us? The question is, how do we prevent more people from falling off the bandwagon, right? Like, what can we do with our existing audience realizing that it is not permanent, right? That the conspiracy theory from 
2002 has re-emerged in 2022, but with an entirely different group of people who have taken it even more seriously and are greater in number, right? Conspiracies build. And so I don't think there may be, and I hate to say this, right, a portion of the population that we have just lost, right? And I don't know if there's a right way to get those people back. But what I do know is that if there's a way to prevent people from becoming like that, right? Like we can keep the people we have now. And I think that that's been ignored as a priority over the last few years. Like we are so focused on how to wrap the far right back into the fold that we're not asking ourselves if we are appropriately serving the audience we have. And and I think that that is where we should reorient. And that is where we will come up with the most innovative ideas for how to engage and keep audiences is if we stop thinking about the audience we've already lost and probably lost several years ago, right? And start thinking about the audience that we have now and how to prevent more of them from believing and acting on conspiracy and extremism. So it's not as if you don't have a lot to do, but you also have a side project, don't you? Do you want to tell us a little <laughs> bit about your other your other reporting project too? Yeah. So I um last year, um, you know, I during the pandemic, well, not during the pandemic, just before the pandemic, I moved to Texas, which is where I'm from. And as a result, stopped teaching at Columbia Journalism School, which I had done for several years, um, and then also stopped teaching at NYU. Um, and so I had all of this stuff, right? Like I had all of these, like I taught investigative and data journalism in both of these places, like extremely entry-level versions of both. And so what I essentially had was all of this like built curriculum for new career journalists that I was teaching at Columbia NYU and was just sitting on my computer. And I was like, why am I not doing anything with this? Like, it's not going to take me any more work to just continue doing what I've already been doing. And so I decided to start the Friendly State News, which is a little tiny nonprofit um, that does very inexpensive news trainings for student newsrooms, local newsrooms, and freelance journalists. And so newsrooms can hire me for like 500 bucks for like hours of instruction um, to teach them how to do freedom of information requests, to edit freedom of information requests, uh, or to teach data journalism in like the lowest sort of common denominator, right? Like I'm teaching people how to use Excel. I am teaching people how to like do incredibly simple things in command line or incredibly simple joins in SQL, like things that are so easy to do. And if journalists just knew them, right, like knew how to do it, um, then they would, you know, then I think that they could really make their work a lot more efficient. And so that's what I focus on for the friendly state is these hard skills that you can learn in a day and then immediately deploy to great effect in the newsroom. And there are so many skills like that. And you shouldn't need to go to Columbia Journalism School to learn them. Like, it is insane to me as a graduate of that institution that I did not learn how to use a pivot table or send a FOIA 
until I went to journalism school at Columbia. Like that is insane. Those are such basic building blocks of this profession and that we have built it up in this weird ivory tower and have like hidden this very basic knowledge from other people because they like can't afford to drop 80 grand on Columbia is nuts. I will, so, I will, I will stop you there because what you're saying also matches my experience in teaching visualization. I mean, certainly coming to a visualization class can benefit your career because you yeah. will end up you'll end up this semester being essentially a professional visualization designer. But to learn basic things such as how to use, I don't know, data wrapper or flourish or tableau or something like that, and you know, you know, bring up a few bar graphs and line charts, that can be taught in literally two hours. I mean, two or less hours. Than that. Yeah, yeah. Like, and so that this is, I think, what is gonna help diversify this industry is if we like if we can all wrap our minds around the fact that journalism is fundamentally a skill set it is not an academic pursuit right like you do not need to go to school for a million years to be a journalist it is fundamentally a skill that you can teach people how to do and so if we can boil our profession down into teachable skills and teach them one off as like in an a la carte menu, then this industry can be a lot more approachable to people, right? Like you don't need to go to journalism school for a year if all you want to learn how to do is a pivot table and how to make a bar graph. Like, and we shouldn't hold those skills in journalism schools. Like they should be much more accessible to people who have no interest in going into higher education at all. And, and so anyway, th this is like, this is the, the ground I have staked and will probably, and probably the hill I will die on. Um, but, but I think that journalism can and should be much more attainable. You don't know how much I agree with you. Even being a journalism professor, I sometimes, I mean, most of my students are not journalists in the first place. The students that I get in my classes are data scientists, engineers, mathematicians, uh, biologists. They come from all over, but they yeah. want to learn how to communicate effectively, ethically, right? So it, essentially they want to learn journalism, but you know what the challenge is? that we journalists tend to be overly protective of our own field and we want our field to be journalism, right? And there are even countries that we're trying to push the need to have a journalism degree to practice journalism, which is absolutely insane. I remember this happened in Spain many years ago. It was also going to happen in Brazil when I lived there. I said, this is completely insane. Anybody can be a journalist as long as you follow certain ethical principles or certain practices and so on and so forth. You don't need to have a degree in journalism. But on the other side, and I'm telling you this because we are sort of like, we align on many things. On the other side, you also have the people who come to classes like mine saying, why is this a journalism class? Well, I said, because this is a journalism class. I'm going to teach you how to communicate effectively and ethically about issues that the public should know about. That's what journalism yes. is. <laughs> that's what it is. And, that, and, that's, and that's what it is, right? Like, communicating efficiently and ethically and well to the public such that the public understands something that they did not understand before is the baseline of journalism. And I think maybe I see this a little bit differently than most journalists because I used to be a high school teacher. Um, and, and so I think fundamentally everything to me boils down to like what I can help people understand. Um, and, and so I think, you know, I, I think about this in a little bit different of a way because I began 
my adult life as like a curriculum development specialist in Newark, New Jersey. Um, but but I don't like, I don't think that this is like a totally radical concept. All right, I think this is a great point to go to our little pop quiz. Thanks, Jessica. Uh, so we're going to kick off with. Give us a book or a class that had an impact on you as a professional. What would you tell people to read? Or, or, or both. It can be more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that the book that I recommend that all journalists read is you can buy it from the um, Investigative Reporters and Editors Association for like 10 bucks. And it's a download. And it's from Sarah Cohen, who used to be at the New York Times and is now at the University of Arizona. And it's called Numbers in the Newsroom. And it is just the most basic primer on how to use numbers ethically and well in your work. Like this is a like this is a signed reading for all of my Bobby reporters um, because it's so good and it's so easy to understand. Like she has written this book. Like if you suck at math, you can still understand every single word in this book. And I like that is hard to do. And she has done it right. Um, and and you know, and I think like not to sing her praises like extensively, although she deserves every one of them. Like I also had a class when I was at Columbia with Sarah Cohen. And this was really where I like learned how to write about numbers. And, and, you know, like you can be good at math all you want. And I wasn't until journalism school, true fact, but you can be good at math all you want. But if you can't explain the math you did, why'd you do it? Like if you're a journalist, really. And, and, and she was so powerful and sort of saying like, great, you did a data analysis. Like if you can't explain it to anybody and you can't make anybody care about it, then like, why'd you do it? And, and I was like, that's, that's it. Right. And, and so I think she, like that class and her book have really underscored a lot of what I think is really important about data journalism. I think that we all like Sarah very much. Um, we like her work. We love her. She's an amazing person, great communicator. We we all agree on that. And I, I also recommend that book as well as an intro uh, to for reporters who suck at math. I would say that the journalists should not be bad at math in the first place. No, Partic I really particularly wish basic arithmetic, right? It's like oh so my goodness, simple. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I you know I every year when I teach a data journalism class, I give people a pot, like a quiz at the beginning that force, like, I'm like, you can't use any tools. I'm going to watch you. Like I'm a high school teacher proctoring the SAT and you're going to do this math or explain like, what's a standard deviation? Like define it. You know what I mean? And then I use that quiz as a baseline for where I need to start with math instruction because most journalists are really bad at math and I sympathize. I was also horrible at math. And if I had given that test to myself on the first day of journalism school, I think I would have wept. Right. But I think this is, this is part of the change that needs to happen is that we, we need to stop emphasizing to undergrads in journalism. Like this is a profession you can do if you don't like math, right? Like, cause it's fundamentally not. And I wish I'd known that. I, I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, by the way, I wonder how many journalists would be able to tell me what a standard deviation is in the first Very place. Cool. But but that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> um, anyway, so another question related to this. Um, if you could keep just one of the tools that you commonly use, what would that tool be? Excel. I like I know that that's so basic, but like that is the answer. Like 
most data sets that I work with on a daily basis are not big enough to justify using anything else. And if I had to pick like the most useful tool that I use every single day of my life is Excel. And that's like the least sexy data journalism answer that you've probably ever been given on this show. But it's a beautiful program. It's so great. It's literally, we had a poll for the top tool i think it would always be excel it's so interesting it's still still amazing and like and that when i started it was it was there for me for sure mm -hmm. um, okay last one pie charts or tree maps pie charts i love a pie chart i really do and you know and people people you know poo poo on pie charts all the time um but you know what i think having like let me tell you something for the news or for the newsletter that we send out every saturday morning which is like honestly, read mostly by election officials and election administrators. We have a little graph at the end. It's like number of the week. And it's usually like our intern made a pie chart. And that's the whole thing. But let me tell you, these people love it, right? Like they love seeing easily understood and immediately accessible data visualizations of something that is not easy to understand, right? Like they love it for funding structures. They want to see where most of the money went. Even if you've got to follow it with an article that gives all of it context, because pie charts don't give you any information at all, that's fine. Like, get I think they engage people who are otherwise afraid of data visualizations because they don't know how to read them. Everybody knows how to read a pie chart. I love pie charts. I completely agree with you. I mean, they may not be the most effective way to represent data if you want to compare things or see things very accurately. But, you know, not all visualizations are intended to do that. Some visualizations are simply intended to bring attention to a, to a data point. To, oh, absolutely. To a couple yeah. of facts. And, you know, they are good at that. They are good at well, thank you so much again for making the time. This was absolutely delightful. Oh, I had such a good time. Thank you for having me. This was fun.